Welcome, everyone, to episode 53 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I'm here with David Benefield. Dave has had quite an interesting journey for a poker legend. He crushed the biggest games in online poker from ages 18 to 25. He then left the poker world to pursue studies at St. John's University and Columbia. While he was at Columbia, he took a bit of a sabbatical to go to Macau and play in the highest stakes games in the world for a year and a half. He also, during this sabbatical, made the 2013 main event final table at the World Series of Poker. He now resides in Texas, where he oversees a staff of eight people in an actively managed crypto trading fund. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. How's it going today? Pretty good. How you doing, Brandon? Pretty good. All right. So uh, take us back to age 18. I Or maybe before age 18, because I understand that you started poker after watching Rounders. Uh, how old were you when Rounders came out? Oh, I'm not sure how old I was when it came out, but I first saw it when I was 16. Uh, and that sort of jump-started my interest in poker, uh, along with a few, a few classmates. We started playing in high school, just kind of... Instead of going to, going to the party on Friday night, we get together and have a poker game or whatever at somebody's house. Had a group of maybe like six to 10 guys pretty consistently. And we'd play little tournaments and like $10 buy-in cash games and things like that. Um, got my start got my start doing that. Then uh, found some like local cash games or whatever in and around Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, played a couple like small small buy-in games there until I, until I got to age 18 and started playing online. So how long did it take for the ultra competitive streak to kick in? Probably the first day I played. Um, one of the kids in the game, uh, Grant, he, he sort of seemed like he was doing things a little bit better than everybody else, a little bit more methodical. He seemed to be showing up with the good hands consistently. And like the first two sessions we played, he built like a huge stack and I just like torched off all my money. I had no idea what was going on. I just reached out to him was like, hey, like, you know, is there some strategy like how are you thinking about this like how's this thing work um and he i think he'd read like theory of poker or something at that point so he had like an enormous advantage over anybody that hadn't like thought about poker in you know serious way at all before um so i ended up just picking up a bunch of books i think like found like the two plus two forums or whatever this was probably 2003 maybe um so i read like i read this stuff that existed back then that was like holding poker for advanced players and like Sklansky and Malmuth stuff. Um, there really wasn't a ton of what I thought was great literature at the time, but most of my, most of my, uh, I'd say early learnings came through uh, just a network of friends and just like other people that were doing the same stuff. We just chatted about poker all the time and kind of figured it out together, independent of the books or whatever. What were your favorite two plus two forums back in the day? I was, I was uh, in the early days, I was big on the STTF forum, the single table tournaments. I played mostly sit and goes when I first started. Um, I didn't actually, I was, I was a little bit hesitant to switch to the cash games. Mostly I think cause like sit and goes are pretty easy and straightforward and I had a nice system that worked. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was pretty active in the STTF forum for the first couple of years. Uh, and then like probably everything a little bit um, after that, but that was certainly my home for the first, first few years. So you've told the story elsewhere that a formative early experience for you was going to the PokerStars Caribbean adventure in the Bahamas and meeting all of the people that you had 
previously only no, known on two plus two. Could you take us back to that time? Man, I mean, we're going back half a lifetime now. <laughs> um, yeah, my 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 early crew, I guess. Trying to think back, guys, like it was like the the ship at Halabala group, like Andrew Robel and Peter Jetton and Tom Dwan was in the mix and Alan Sass and some of those some of those guys. Um, and uh, yeah, first time I went to PCA, I think it must have been like 2005. And I, I, I think I'd saved up maybe like, I don't know, built my bankroll up to like 30 or 40,000. And then I just like, was like, oh, let's spend half of this on this like PCA thing. That seems like a, a good investment. Uh, so I just like direct bought into the PCA that first year I went down and busted out the first day in like maybe four or five hours or something. Just didn't play particularly well. And I can't, I can't remember what happened, but I think I probably just torched it off. Um, and so that was, that was like my first real big events uh that i played in person but it was also the place where i met you know a lot of those guys mentioned i think i think there was probably i can't remember who was down there at the time but um that was like the first time uh that was like the first big poker trip i went on where i got to put a lot of, put some names to faces a little bit there was also like a there's also an event um that irie guy ran uh uh famous in the sttf forums or whatever he ran like a big heads up tournament where must have been like 20 or 30 of the guys that were all regular posters on, on the forum came together and played like a, I don't remember what it was, $500 or $1,000 buy-in heads up tournament and uh, met a bunch of the guys, met a bunch of the guys through that as well. Um, you know, the, cra was. the crazy thing is I remember that tournament very well also. Okay. And when you get a little older, you'll you realize it's a bit harder to jog the memory. Um, <clears throat> but I remember meeting, for instance, Tom with his his chain back then, uh, 18 years old at that tournament. Uh, I remember distinctly where I was when I met him and and sort of what we chatted about. And uh, and I remember meeting other characters of the time, like uh, back then, Ozzy87 was on the big heater. Remember that? He was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, he was a crusher. Playing playing the games, and I remember that that tournament that you're talking about, they played it battleship style, right? Yes, uh, we, we played we played with physical cards though. Um, it wasn't, didn't do laptops or anything, just heads up in person, rented out like a little conference room or something. Uh, yeah, and, and back then everyone would sort of sit in the lobby and play online poker. Like you could go to the lobby at any point in time, there'd be 50 people down yeah. there poker. Yeah, well, so, so, the the heads up tournament that Irie game ran that was that was in Vegas, but at PCA, yeah, like there was always stuff going on uh, in the lobbies or whatever, like Coral Towers or whatever. Um, people are just kind of grouped up, grinding online or whatever, and they did do that battleship style uh, heads up tournament at PCA. I think I, I think yeah yeah I remember that. Um, so you met Durr for the first time in that PCA tournament. And you guys ultimately rented a house together, which was sort of like, uh, I don't know, poker boot camp or whatever. You guys had the the setup and were playing quite a lot of poker in those times. How, how did that come about? How much later was that than the, the 2005 PCA? I think we bought that house in 2006. So I'm pretty sure like, like we, we, we actually bought that place, but neither of us had documentable income, hadn't paid taxes. And so we're definitely, we were like the no document loan people that were like part of the subprime uh, disaster. I, I assume it was like them giving people like me, 
you know, half a million dollar loans to buy a house or whatever, part of, part of what caused the, the issues that we had. But um, yeah, we, we got that house in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, that was just sort of the base of operations in the early days. Um, yeah, just grinding, had friends come into town, hang out, whatever. Uh, still traveled a bunch. I think probably like Tom never really even spent that much time there. I think he probably spent maybe like three or four months there the first year and then like two months there the second year. And then it, it, it quickly kind of trickled off. And I didn't, I didn't really spend a ton of time there after those early days either, but it was pretty close to where my parents live. So it was like a really convenient place whenever I came back in town to kind of hang out and be, be close to the family. Speaking of Tom not spending much time there, I have a funny Tom story that you could relate to. I remember mm -hmm. in March, 2007, Tom, for some reason, he asked me like how much money I spent in the course of a year. And I told him how much I had spent in 2006, which was a large amount. And he was sort of shocked by it. And he told me what he had spent. And back then, believe it or not, it was actually kind of a small amount that he had spent in 2006. And so then the, this conversation was in March of 2007. Well, by the end of March 2007, he had four places that included a very large Vegas residence, a four-bedroom residence in San Diego, a four-bedroom place in Boston, and maybe your place in Texas, one other place for sure. And at least two of those places he spent less than seven days in over the course of the of the year. So... We didn't have to go very far to calculate that he he had whatever he was shocked by in my expenses in 2006. He had like four or five X that in 2007. Yep. Uh, and then he, he was just sort of off to the races. All very on brand. From there. Um, now, in terms of um, your teachers, if you will, you mentioned some of this some of this group, uh, Peter Jetton, Alan Sass, Andrew Robel, uh, maybe a bit later, Hack Dang and uh, Dai Dang, Galfond. Yeah, Zian uh, Hack, Phil Galfond, those guys, yeah. So um, maybe Tom is perceived as kind of the, the teacher there. Um, how, did it, how did it go down? Was it everyone contributing? Who who was the formative intellectual influence? And and Hack and, and Z, you guys were playing a lot of poker together. When when did you meet them? Yeah, I met uh, Z and Hack a few years later. Um, I met Phil Galfond at that uh, SCTF Heads Up event. I'm pretty sure uh, for the first time. Um, but I sort of look at those guys as my like second secondary poker group or something. Um, in the early days, uh, let's see with Tom, like Tom and I are very, very, very different. Um, and like, we, we sort of adopted very different styles for poker, uh, when we first started playing. Um, but I learned, I learned a ton watching him. Like he used to, I mean, even in like Oh five, Oh six, he would, he would be battling like pretty big stakes, uh, like heads up no limit. And then he started playing PLO and he was just always kind of in these games against, you know, guys that I thought were really good. So it was really cool uh, to kind of just like sit behind him and just like watch and then like talk to him about stuff and like figure out how he's thinking about the game or whatever. And I definitely like learned 
how to be an aggressive maniac uh, to, to some um, decent effect in the early days through Tom. Um, and then like my, my very early like PLO uh, exposure was through him as well. Um, and so, yeah, like trying to, trying to think about like who I learned the most from, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I did really always love just like watching uh, my friends play poker. Like I, I kind of felt like um, the style that I had adopted was a bit of an amalgamation of a lot of my friends uh, and their styles and the things that they did. And I'd bring in little pieces that I felt kind of like fit my style or made sense to me to add or whatever. Um, and so I, I, I'm not sure I'd say there's any like one in particular, but just like that group in general, like they were all very, very good, uh, like among the best at one point. And I feel like just kind of being exposed to those guys and being around them and getting to watch them play and getting to talk about how they think about hands and general strategies and life and whatever um, was all, you know, incredibly important to my own development and getting better and whatever. Uh, but I'm, I'm struggling to identify anyone in particular that I felt had like a specifically profound effect or something. But um, I, I definitely look at myself as sort of a, a, a combination of like all of those styles uh, in, in a way. You've mentioned elsewhere that in your formative poker years, you were spending a hundred hours a week playing poker, thinking about poker, talking about poker. Is that, is that accurate? How yeah, I mean, it was it was an all-consuming thing for me. Like, I didn't really do anything else when I was playing poker full-time. Um, yeah, like, I, I basically, like, I would wake up, I would sit down on my computer, and I would, like, basically pull up tables. Now, that was, that was, that was pretty consistent for a number of years. Um, and any time, like, I wasn't sitting at a poker table, I was usually with poker friends, talking strat, talking about whatever. And so probably for the first, like, five years I played, um, those hours were, were pretty consistent. Like I, I you know, I'd, I'd go out or whatever, but it was like usually with or around poker people. And that's all we talked about. I mean, it was really uh, an obsession for, for a while, for sure. I think kind of had to be like, just back then, like it was the most interesting thing I could do. It was also the most lucrative thing I could do. Uh, and so it wasn't even like, it wasn't even a choice. It was just like, this is clearly the, the right thing to be doing with my time. So, Take us back to your blog. It was a very popular blog at the time. You're really making me go back in time. For this. I know, I know, this is it. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're done. We're done after this, I promise. Um, but I wanna hear about the blog because okay. look, people find it hard to imagine now that blogs were ever popular because blogs are not currently popular. And your blog was, very popular. I mean, we didn't know about engagement stats and things like that back then, but I think 2006, 2007, that was the height of engagement for poker. I think now, even if Phil Ivey starts a blog tomorrow and starts revealing every secret about his life, like it's not going to have tremendous engagement relative to what maybe your blog had in 2006. It was just much more of a blog oriented internet. Um, and, and your blog was kind of a funny thing because it was all over the map. Sometimes you would do deep soul searching. Many times it would be 
sort of a journal of quite structured behavior in terms of wake up, work out, eat healthy, play a lot of poker. Take us back to those blog days and and can anyone find your blog right now if they wanted to? Can anyone find it? I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe it's still up on like the card runner site. Maybe somebody hosted it somewhere else. I'm really not sure. I haven't, uh, I haven't really thought about it in a long time. Um, okay. So, so take you back to the blog years. Yeah. So that was like, I mean, that was a very personal blog. Like it was sort of, um, it was like my public, uh, process of self-discovery or something, I guess. And like, you know, I was just an idiot kid, right? Like I'm like a 20 year old. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure it out. And so like, uh, I was very public in sharing that process. I think like I was pretty happy to kind of just like talk about the stuff that I was going through or the stuff that I was struggling with or the stuff that I was interested in. And the blog format was really nice. Cause like I'd get a lot of feedback on stuff. Like if I was struggling with something, like somebody would usually have some thoughts. They'd, they've dealt with something similar. I'm like, Oh, cool. I can learn from that. Or, uh, just like kind of sharing like my poker journey or whatever, like people, a lot of people would ask about it. So I, you know, post results, talk about like different, uh, like heads up battles I was playing. And it was thinking back, like, I feel like it was a really useful tool for me to just kind of like develop myself and how I think about stuff and how I think about the learning process and stuff like that. Um, I haven't actually like reflected on it, uh, in any meaningful way. Um, but like looking back, like I, I do, I do think it was like a really cool thing and I'm really glad I did it. And I'm actually curious to go back and read some of it now, uh, just to like get an idea of how I was thinking about stuff or whatever back then, what's changed now. So in that 06, 09 period, do you have a distinct memory of your biggest upswing and biggest downswing? Um, I'm trying to remember if it was like before 2011, or after because I, I was still playing like I went back to school but I was still playing quite a bit I remember when Black Friday happened like me and Gus were battling a bunch of like 501k cap and I was like in the midst of like my worst downswing ever and then Black Friday happens and I was like oh fuck I'm never gonna get my money back now um and that was that was a thing but yeah I mean let, let's see I mean biggest downswing was probably around a million and a half or something at that time um and that was like probably a combination of playing horrifically and playing against people that i shouldn't have been playing um and then just like general variance or whatever uh biggest upswing i mean i don't know what, what, whatever allowed me to lose a million and a half <laughs> yeah, so. okay so in 2009 you enrolled in saint john's college in santa fe new mexico i did the only place I got into. And that was a deliberate decision, presumably something you had been thinking about for some time. Could you, could you take us back to that decision? Yeah. So while I was obsessed with poker, I think I didn't like love it. I think I sort of uh, recognized at some point, maybe by like 2007, that it wasn't going to be what I did for the rest of my life. Um, and so I think like in, 08, 09, I was actually like pretty depressed. And I think I was like, like objectively, I was in a very good situation. I had a pretty good bankroll. I was like among the better players uh, in poker at the games that I played. Um, 
but every day it kind of like felt like it was the same to me a little bit. Like I'd wake up, I'd play a bunch of poker and I'd go to sleep and I kind of lived in a little bit of a bubble. Um, didn't know, uh, really what I wanted to do at all, but I kind of knew that I wanted to do something. I didn't want to have any limiting factors once I figured it out. So figured a decent start would be to go back to school. And then thinking about like the places I wanted to go, uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in anything technical at the time. So I wanted to build like a foundation of um, philosophy essentially. And so that was like my primary interest uh, at the time. I applied to, let's see, Pomona College in just outside of LA, Claremont. Uh, Reed College in Portland and then St. John's College. Um, all a little bit different, but also kind of directionally similar. Uh, only got into St. John's College and um, really glad, really glad that I did it. it, it it's a super interesting program uh, called The Great Books. They, the, the focus is uh, a classical education. Um, you read the classics of Western civilization. So you start with like uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Um, you're learning how to translate ancient Greek from, from day one. So you're reading Plato and Aristotle and using using those translations that you develop yourself and kind of comparing those to uh, you know, translations from, from people that do that for a living or whatever. Like learning, learning uh, the, the, the Greek stuff was really interesting for me. Like I probably spent like four hours a day just like translating into Greek in a dungeon for like half a year. Um, and that was like, you know, coming from the poker life where we kind of just do whatever we want. And like, it, it sort of feels like everything's a game. That was like my first, uh, I don't know, real exposure to like the rote work that I'd had in like half a decade or something. Um, but just like the, the, the program in general, I feel like was really good for me. Um, all the classes were extremely small. You have like 12 to 20 kids, uh, one to two, uh, they call them tutors, but the, those would be the professors. Their idea was essentially to just like guide the discussion, kind of like keep it from going too off the rails. And then everybody sort of had this like shared um vocabulary we all read the same books we all took the same classes um there wasn't any majors that you got to choose you didn't get to pick your classes and so it's like you know by year two year three everyone's read the same stuff and so it's like all of the references you're talking about like everyone shares that and i thought that was like a really cool kind of uh yeah really cool mechanism just for for going about a college i, I spent two years there I, I eventually got to the point where i like didn't, didn't really want to do classes anymore but um, at the time, I think it was like a really good place for me to be. So you moved on to Columbia, but before we, we go into the Columbia years, I want to ask you, how did you, how did you rein in your attention span after years of playing in the highest stimulation environment possible, super high stake poker, multi-table, hundred hours a week, go, go from that to sitting in the library doing Greek translations. A, a lot of people would be interested in this because I frequently talk with people that are trying to make a transition into say a hard academic program from a high stimulation environment. They find it very difficult. So yeah. you remember how you did it? I just did it. I mean, I think it was a little bit a combo of like, well, probably the most important thing is that like I chose to be there. And like, if I choose to do something, I feel like it's usually like pretty easy to keep doing it. And so it didn't feel like anybody was forcing me to be there. It's like, oh no, I wanted to do this. This is part of me being here. So I'm just going to get it done. Um, I actually took the, 
I took my first real poker break my first semester there um, where I didn't play for three months. And for me, that was like a crazy thing. Like, I don't think I'd taken longer than a week break in the five years before that. Um, and this was also the time when like Isildur was coming onto the scene. And so he was, you know, playing these epic heads up battles. And so like the high stakes games were booming and there was just like, I don't know, ton of action or whatever. Um, I think this was 2010. So I, I think it was 2010 that I started going to uh, St. John's College. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I, I took that time off. And so I think that sort of allowed me to, I don't know, dial into the life of being a student again and, and uh, turn off the like perpetual high stakes volatility stimulation or whatever. And I think after a couple of weeks, it's like, it wasn't a big deal. Um, how was the I, wish, I wish I had some like really good advice for like people trying to transition or whatever. I think you just have, you know, if it's, it's something you really want to do, you'll find a way to do it. If you don't really want to do it, you'll find a reason not to. How was the move to Columbia? Uh, that was interesting. Um, so I did, yeah, I did two years at St. John's College. After the first year, I started looking into like, uh, transferring I, I didn't really know like where I could get in so I, I kind of just took a list of like the top 30 schools and applied to all of them um got into more than I thought I would which is cool uh Columbia was the was the uh top of my list that I got into so was pretty happy to go to New York um pretty happy to live there for a little bit but I I my first I made a mistake my first semester um, like I had a pretty good foundation in Greek. Uh, I thought about continuing my classical studies a little bit, at least for like to fulfill a language requirement at Columbia. Um, but I was kind of over it. I wasn't that interested in it anymore. Um, didn't think I was going to use it too much other than like, you know, the foundation that I built, like that seemed sufficient. So I started taking Chinese and that, uh, that was kind of a nightmare for me. Like the first, I, I really did spend uh, four or five hours a day just like trying to figure out how this language worked. Um, I think like I showed up day one to like the elementary Chinese class and we got our textbooks and teachers writing on the board and everything. And it's all just Chinese characters. And I'm just like, am I supposed to like know how to read this? Like <laughs> looking around like the other students in the class, they all seem like they're good to go. And I'm just like, oh, hello. I don't think I'm in the right place here. I was in the right place. That was the elementary Chinese class. I just uh, had, a, had a long way to go. But um, other than that, I took like, like I, my degree, I was, I transferred allegedly to do economics. I took a bunch of like econ and math the first semester along with the Chinese. And uh, uh, it was really hard. <laughs> Honestly, like I just, I spent like way too much time studying. I didn't have much of a life that first semester. So I was kind of like looking at, um, well, thinking more about like what I wanted to do, what I needed as far as like credits to graduate or whatever. And like pretty much all of my credits at that point were humanities, um, classics type stuff. And so like a track that I was a little bit better for was um, East Asian studies. And so I just decided to major in East Asian studies because it was like the quickest path to graduation, essentially. Um, Somewhere along the way at Columbia, you chanced upon a main event final table and you took a semester or two off. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So my after my first year uh, at Columbia, I did a study abroad program in Beijing. 
Um, that was a two and a half month program uh, at Ninzu Dashue, which is like a ethnic minority university, like 40 minutes outside of the city center. Anyway, that was a cool program. Uh, Tom was in Macau at the time. I'd never been at this point. This was 2012, I think, like some of 2012. Um, he was just like, hey, I'm in Macau. You should come down before you head back. Uh, and I'm just like, fuck, man, I've been gone for like two and a half months. I don't really want to like go on some other trip to play poker right now. I'd like to get back and see some friends before school starts. Anyway, he, he talks me into going to Macau. I fly down there. Ends up being like the most amazing games I've ever seen. It's like, you know, you're playing 10 times higher stakes against players that are like five times worse. So theoretically, you can make 50 times as much money. That seemed like a pretty good uh, place to spend some time. Uh, so I ended up taking the next year and a half off but my plan was to just like take a semester off spend some time in macau play some poker take a little break just got done grinding for a year was pretty over it um knowing that i only had about like a year and a half left to to finish off school i expected to go back a semester later anyway um extended that uh time off one more semester first semester went pretty well wanted to spend some more time out there and then that following summer in vegas i final tabled the main event um decided to take another semester off because I, I thought it'd be useful to just like play a bunch more live tournaments and play some high rollers and try to get some final table experience and whatever leading up, leading up to the main event. So had a year and a half long break in between uh, to get back on the poker ground. Where were you living in Macau? I was in one central. Uh, it's like the, just outside of the wind, there's like a big shopping mall between wind and the, Mandarin Oriental. Um, there's like seven big towers, just kind of luxury condos, whatever. And it was very convenient because you could go down at 6 a.m. to the poker room, put your name on the list. They'd send you a text. You had 20 minutes to get to your seat. You have more than enough time if you're living in one central to just throw some pants on and come downstairs and be at the poker table. Super convenient. So would you play most of your poker at the win or in the junket rooms or uh the regular game i played in was at the win the junket stuff was usually at star world and that was like the real big game stuff um i didn't actually play in the super big game that much initially uh and then like really like i was objectively just like massively underrolled for how how big the stakes were and um yeah, I mean, some of the stuff, <laughs> some of the games are absolutely insane. But yeah, yeah, most, most of the stuff I did was at when I played in the big game at Star World, like once a month kind of thing. And uh, I was over there. What Americans were you hanging with regularly in Macau? <sighs> hmm. like, probably not like a ton of Americans, really. Uh, most of my crew was like European or uh, Chinese or whatever I, I was uh let's see sort of like after the first few years i spent a lot of time with with a couple of the french guys we shared an apartment uh Rui Cal, romain arnaud cyril um but they were they were a fun group of, of degenerate really solid poker players um and then like uh guys like andy mosley he was he was probably like my closest friend out there um not a lot of the british guys uh 
like John and JP Kelly used to play a bunch out there and some other guys. Uh, yeah. So the main event, what, what was your entering chip position? I know the final result was eighth. I was, I was uh, last in chips going into the final table. Okay. Like, I think I had like 17 big ones or something, something like that. Yeah, I was, I was, was last in chips. Fun I at was, the time, was, right, to have the November 9 format and get oh, to Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. It was cool. Like, it was, you know, I think I think everybody's, most most kids coming up have, like, a dream to final table of a main event. I'll probably, the dream is to win it. Um, but certainly the final table, final tabling the main event is one of those sort of experiences that I think most poker players are pretty happy to check off the bucket list if, they, if they're lucky enough to get to do it. So, um Certainly a cool thing. Didn't really expect it. Uh, so, yeah, it was, yeah, anyway, it was, it was cool. Football fans, join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football, the first ever NFT fantasy game from DraftKings. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. You can play all season for millions in prizes by building the ultimate NFT franchise. Playing Rainmakers is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long. You'll be competing for almost 30 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings Fantasy app and sign up with the promo code ADAMS. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then be playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT franchise. That's promo code Adams, build, play, and win only at DraftKings. So then you are back at Columbia and you finish up in 2015. Yep. And you had this practical experience. How did that shape your studies? Uh... How did my poker shape my studies? Well, you had been in China for for two years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Um, so, like that, it, it would make sense that I would have gotten a little bit better at the language and culture stuff. Um, let's see. I would say it didn't. It didn't really do much in terms of like reshaping my studies. I was already pretty locked in uh, to like my major and stuff, just with like where I was at with credits or whatever. Um, but my Chinese did get a little bit better. Obviously, like you have a lot of exposure to it in Macau. That being said, like most of the speakers there are kind of defaulting to Cantonese and I was studying Mandarin, so it wasn't particularly helpful. Um, Macau's like right, right outside of Hong Kong. And so you get the, like the Hong Kong is sort of native Cantonese speaking more generally. And then like Beijing further up north is like the more Mandarin speaking. Uh, so that's what, that's what I did. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, very good, I think, experience to have going back to school. And I did write my, I did write my thesis about money laundering in Macau. Uh, so that, that was pretty relevant, I guess. That's a, that's a tough one to take on. I mean, that was around the time the Wall Street Journal reporter was writing about the same topic. And I think it caused some changes in rules in the Western casinos and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, I I'm, I'm I don't think I was uh, doing anything that would have been like trouble causing. This undergraduate thesis isn't like something anybody's really going to read. I don't think. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was sort of just like, I wasn't really like going after, uh, you know, people involved. I was just kind of like looking at numbers and how they shifted and what the major games are and like where revenue comes from and implications of a few different things related to that. So in retrospect, you would say that those boom years of <clears throat> Macau poker, they were Chinese capital flight facilitated through through Macau and then that sort of tightened off recently. I don't know if I would say that, but it certainly seems like uh, at one point in the past, it was a lot easier to get money into Macau from the mainland than it is currently. And yeah. Macau is probably the, the action there is probably one tenth of what it what it used to be, right? Yeah, honestly, I'm not even sure. Like I haven't um, we're talking a lot about poker. I haven't actually played poker in three and a half years. Um, almost a little over three years, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the numbers are like over there. And imagine I'd imagine they're hurting. Like I think COVID kind of kind of wrecked Macau a little bit. And then before that, they were doing some anti-corruption crackdown stuff that, that limited uh, liquidity, I guess you could say. So you say you haven't played in three years, but uh, according to your Hinden mob, you had quite a run at the Triton London 2019. Yeah. It seemed like you did very, very yeah. well there. That was the last, I think, the last time I played poker. Yeah. And then I had never heard this, but someone was mentioning recently that uh, – a lot of players had trouble getting paid for one reason or another in that in that tournament. I don't know if that or there there was something um, about the some some people were unhappy with the the payments process for that tournament. It might have taken a minute. I honestly don't even remember. I don't recall it being a huge deal personally. So so you did a couple of Triton events uh, that year. You did. Jeju, I guess, and London. I think I played three Triton events. I did, I did Jeju, I did Montenegro, and I did London. Possible, I did one more. I can't remember. Yeah, I think just those three. So, in the research for this pod, I, I listened to your podcast with Lee Davy that you did in 2019 in Jeju. Okay. It was a very good podcast. It was also, by the way, a very tough podcast. He asked questions that were way tougher than you'll ever get. From me, I don't know if he prepped you on those, but he he asked questions like, "What were three defining moments in your life?" It's hard questions to answer on the spot. Um, and I also, as part of my preparation, went through two two and a half years of your Twitter, and I have wow. to call you to task on one thing. Uh oh, for someone who who blogged so openly back in the day 15 years ago you you stay pretty tight-lipped on your twitter there's a lot of retweeting going on when are we going to get some openness from from david benefield i don't know i just don't see much benefit from being open these days i guess um well in the interview from jeju you mentioned that you have a problem with the uh, political divisiveness and the polarity and the fact that people can be closed-minded to differing opinions. Is that, is that sort of what you're referring to? That's the problem you have with Twitter? No, I think it's, it's, well, it's just not a great format to disagree. And I find that on Twitter, I want to disagree a lot. And the way to do that probably isn't in like 280 character clumps. 
Um, there's just not enough space for nuance. Um, that being said, like I, I do quite like Twitter and spend quite a bit of time on it. Um, although I, I use it more as like a more for news, basically, just like have a pretty curated feed and, and try to follow specific people, or at least like I use lists and stuff pretty pretty consistently to filter things. Um, you know, is it is is I don't know I don't know man. It's like I, I just don't have I really don't have a reason to be public about much. Uh, I think like in earlier days, you know, there was a benefit to doing that, right? Like, like having your name out there, having people know who you were in the poker world was like really good for sponsorships. It was really good for just like, for a lot of things. Um, but these days, like I'm not selling anything. I'm not trying to get noticed. Mostly I'm just trying to be left alone. So kind of like engaging and getting fired up on Twitter just doesn't necessarily align with like my lifestyle right in this moment. Um, not that I don't have thoughts. I just, uh, I don't see much need to kind of like get out there and share them with everyone. Well, I did find one tweet, one actual tweet that was not a retweet from January, 2022. Mm -hmm. It says, the good news is that I'm reading books again. The bad news is that they're mostly about various ways everything has gone to shit historically so I can better understand how everything will go to shit from here. So yeah. take us through your... Uh, your reading list and your and your thought process from those times and if you could include books but also possibly bloggers that you enjoy and maybe podcasts yeah let me grab my phone and actually like look at a book list or something that would be useful yeah i mean so i started uh we'll, we'll do a little background and this is perhaps helpful um I got into crypto in 2014 when I was like trying to play poker in New York and there weren't like sites that I could play, uh, that I could play on for dollars or whatever that weren't like going to scam me, but I thought, um, and so I think like, I don't know, yellow sub or Cole or somebody mentioned seals with clubs. And I was like, Oh, cool. I'll, you know, put some Bitcoin on there and, uh, or I'll get this Bitcoin thing and try to play some poker. Uh, so I did that for a little bit. And then kind of like fell into crypto because of that. Um, and then when I finished school, I was like, I wasn't really sure at all what I wanted to do. This was like summer 2015. And so I actually like looked into getting a job. I did some like interviews and consulting. Um, and then like, I, I'd been, I hadn't been trading, but I sort of like was aware of certain things happening in the crypto space. And then I kind of saw that there was like, a pretty active lending market on Poloniex, uh, where you could just like, you know, if you had Bitcoin, you could lend them to traders who are trying to like short sell it or whatever, or just use it for whatever other leverage stuff they were doing. Um, and they pay you like a pretty significant borrow to do it. And this was like in the 30 to 50% range. And I thought that was just insane. Um, I didn't have like some big long-term view or anything on crypto or anything at the point at that point but i was just like well the coins that i do have i might as well just like put them in this cool savings account thing where people like give me more money um and so that sort of started my like exposure to the space and then i kind of got into lending stuff a little bit more rigorously and then i got into some like very simple arbitrage stuff like i said kind of like around when uh like bitcoin was forking and you had like Bitcoin cash coming out, like Bitcoin gold and all these other things. Um, 
the lending and arbitrage was very good. Like you could, like there's one point on like Bitfinex where you could, I think you could buy Bitcoin gold for like 0.03 and you could sell it for like 0.05 on Polonix, which is just like a disgustingly huge art. <laughs> um, and so just like things like that, I, I sort of basically started trading, um, do, doing things like that. And so uh, I, I, I set up like a formal fund structure and started hiring people and stuff in 2018. Um, and so my tweet at the beginning of this year was sort of with, with sort of a, a with that in mind, like I, I, I trade for a living. This is what I've done full time. This is the reason I haven't played poker for the last three and a half years. Just, um, I, I'm, yeah, whatever. I, I, I run a, I run a little shop, have a team of eight people, um, trade all sorts of different strategies, whatever. Don't have any formal experience in this. Obviously don't have a background in finance, don't have real background in economics or anything. I've always sort of just been like a hobbyist and curious. Um, and so like beginning of this year, you know, it became clear to me that um, uh, the levers, I, I was like missing like the, the primary levers of like the market movements. And I didn't really understand anything about the macro economy. I didn't understand how bonds work, I didn't understand how rates work. And I just had a lot that I needed to kind of figure out um, because like the markets that I traded uh, seemed to be uh, increasing in correlation to the traditional equity markets. And that was something that I had a big gap. In. So yeah, anyway, I um, started reading a lot more about like trying to buy stuff and trying to like brush up on my uh, economic history understanding and just trying to like basically like figure out all the stuff that I, that I don't know and still don't. Uh, about about the world, but I think like I, I figured out that rates were really important. That when we have like negative uh, yielding debt in the world, things start to break and asset valuations get a little crazy, and maybe we get crypto bubbles and things like that. And when that starts to reverse, well, maybe maybe I should think about being careful. Um, and that was yeah, that was January. It was. I think you asked another question there, but I forgot. Oh yeah, so were there particular books that you found influential or maybe podcasts, bloggers? I mean, as far as like podcasts and stuff, I think I really needed just like a basic education for how things work. And so Real Vision was actually pretty helpful. Like I would just listen to the daily briefing every day to get kind of like market news and learn sort of like what other traders and people were just like thinking um, or like what they're thinking about or what they think are like the most important things happening. Cause I didn't even really have like a great frame of reference for thinking about that stuff. Like the way that I've always approached trading has been like specifically crypto mostly and just like trading derivatives and just like imbalances and shit. When people start losing their mind on derivatives, that tends to be like useful information for figuring out what's going to happen directionally or just like it creates all sorts of other conditions that are, uh, pretty good for trading. All right. Going, going through my book list. Um, Dalio read a couple of books from him. I read like basically all the market wizards. So I got like, I actually think those are great books. I, I'd like to highly recommend the market wizards, uh, for people that don't have like much of a background or understanding of like tried by who's kind of curious about like how funds work and how those traders think about stuff and whatever. Like it was a, a pretty cool exposure to a lot of like the big guys in space today. Um, learning a little bit about how to think about the world or whatever. Uh, 
let's see, I read a bunch of like Peter Zihan on geopolitics, kind of like understanding how, you know, just like where we are in the world affects how like things are happening with like rates and dollars and uh, He's oil pretty and gas negative. and food and just like, yeah. He, he is pretty pessimistic. He is pretty pessimistic. He's, he, he's incredibly bullish on the USA, though, um, just like relative positioning wise and just like our, our strengths with rivers and just like, you know, we're pretty isolated. We don't have to worry about any of the Europe and Russia stuff. And like we can, we're, we're pretty self sustaining for energy and food and these things. Anyway, uh, he, he is very bullish on, or very bearish on Europe. Uh, I don't think he thinks anything's going to go well for them in the next couple of years. Um, I don't know, stuff like this, like I'm still an idiot, still just trying to plug in the holes, stuff that doesn't make sense to me, try to dig a little bit or find somebody smart I can talk to about it or whatever. Well, you dropped one piece of information, which is very notable. You have a team of eight people. How, how did this come about? This is like a medium sized fund. Yeah, I mean, basically I'm trying to like build a family office. Um, I think like, like long-term, um, I expect that I'll want to be mostly in control of my money and not just like give it to some person to deal with. Uh, and so it, it, it made sense to me over the last few years to kind of start moving in this direction where I build a team of portfolio managers kind of running different strategies under me that I can kind of like oversee a little bit from the top and do more like big picture research and thinking and whatever while the guys are kind of out there in the streets trading and executing the strategies and whatever. How did it start? All right, uh, 2018, Bitcoin's just coming off an insane run up. Uh, 2017 was a stupid year. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had a decent amount of Bitcoin and it went up a lot. And so that went really well for me. Um, became pretty clear that I needed help uh, to manage um, what I'd spun it up to. So I hired a, a guy who was doing some consulting in New York, had a data analytics background, um, was like curious about crypto, but wasn't like, you know, fully in yet. Um, and so he was my first hire. This was beginning of 2018. and uh, just had him kind of like doing some basic data research type stuff, putting together spreadsheets and building out some better tracking systems for the stuff that I was doing. Ended up uh, torching off most of my money in 2018 um, during a bear market. That's actually part of why I got back into playing poker that year. Um, didn't like, I, I started trying to directionally trade with like kind of an up only bias at like the beginning of like a really bad bear market. And I was grossly ignorant to an enormous number of things. Um, anyway, so like had a really, really horrible year, uh, started playing poker again, um, continued to trade a little bit on the side, continued to think about why I was like making such horrific mistakes, thinking that I was a genius, uh, trading Bitcoin without like any real reason to actually think that other than I've been like modestly sex successful in a couple other things. Um, so anyway, uh, after all that did some poker stuff, started taking trading a little bit more seriously, hired another guy, um, uh, hired another guy out of college to sort of help me build out 
just some better systems and kind of like develop my own strategies a little bit better. I, uh, I, I th let's see, how did this go? Trying to, trying to back up in time a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So this was, this was like late 2018, early 2019. I put, I think I put some coins on BitMEX and was like, if I lose these, I'm not a trader anymore. And so like, I took it very, very seriously from that point. Um, basically like journaled every single trade I ever made, um, journaled every click, talked about why I did it, things that went well, talked about why, which inputs mattered, things that didn't go well, tried to look for like info that, you know, if I, if I like what info could I have seen that would have like led me to make a different decision in this moment, you know, constantly updating and, and iterating on, on that process. And then eventually kind of like figured out some things that worked and then was, was pretty meticulous about just doing the things that worked. And then, you know, things started going a little bit better. Um, so like the, the hiring of people has been fairly organic and sort of just like when, uh, like my last two were, were somewhat opportunistic. Um, couple, I don't know how much you keep up with the crypto stuff, but there was like this big three arrows capital blow up that kind of like nuked all markets. And I don't know, they lost anywhere from 10 to 20 billion and dragged down credit markets and things like that. Um, I actually hired a couple guys from from uh, from them that that got screwed over by the by Sue and Kyle. Um, they're running like long short strategy. One's a developer, one's a trader. It's like things like that were just like a good opportunity where I find somebody that I think is quite good at what they do, and then I can I can plug them in. And <clears throat> what what I'm doing and what they're doing sort of aligns pretty nicely um, with the general sort of idea and direction. Uh, of building out a family office and, and having a, a team running a bunch of different strategies and stuff. I so don't know it, if I can get there, but I'd like to. It's basically uh, oriented to alpha generation over fairly short time horizons in crypto. That's the focus. That's been a lot of the focus. Yeah. But I mean, like there's no mandate, just my money. So it's sort of like whatever we think we can make money betting on, we'll bet on, right? Like we we bet sports and bet elections. I still stake people in poker. Like it, it, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's like a gambling fund, I guess. Although probably like 98% of the volume, um, at least for the last few years up till maybe like four months ago was yeah. Crypto. How was your experience in setting up the formal structure for the fund? I mean, it was fine. Uh, I think like the things that I need to do if I'm not trying to like manage outside capital is very simple. Um, and I just, you know, hired lawyers to do all that. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about how this stuff works. And you very much enjoy markets and trading, I take it. I do. Yeah. I think I've, I've, I've always, I would say been a hobbyist. Like I've, you know, had an E-Trade account since like 2005, but like I didn't, I wasn't like day trading. I'd kind of like click stuff that sounded interesting to me. Wasn't like super rigorous about it. I'd like read some basic investing books and, you know, read the, all the Warren Buffett letters and things like that, you know, over the years. Um, yeah. Do you have an outlook going forward? Are, are you of a bullish or bearish bent? I don't know. I mean, I change my I change my mind so frequently. Like, I I I mostly do shorter term stuff, like 
as far as positioning I have right in this moment, I am long ball for the week, uh, specifically on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think it's a little bit too cheap with some things that are happening this week. Um, like BCI and um, ECB guy just said some scary shit about like people should rebalance their pensions. And uh, I don't know. I think ball's just priced a little bit too cheap for crypto right now. If I can get like a $800 straddle for 19K, I'm pretty happy to have that for like four days or whatever. Did you ever get involved in NFTs or, or anything like that? In what? F oh, NFTs? Yeah. Um, a little bit. Like I, I traded punks a fair bit. Um, actually went pretty well. Uh, did a lot, did a fair bit of like mint and flips for all sorts of dusty projects. I don't think I have any like long-term bull biases for anything really uh, in the NFT space, but it was certainly like an interesting, highly, highly profitable place to be if you had half a brain and were paying attention. So do you find yourself doing uh, limited trades in the traditional markets like S&P, single stocks, all of that kind of stuff? Um, limited, limited, very limited things. Uh, that being said, like my overall positioning right now, like I, I just had, late, well, not right in this moment, but lately I've had bigger bets um, in traditional equity markets than in crypto. Uh, but it's sort of more just like, I, I, I sort of like position my like bear bets through equity options lately. Um, very short term stuff though. Uh, like I don't usually hold stuff longer than a couple of weeks. Right. Now we are going to take your retweets as endorsements. So I'm wondering if oh, you could give okay. us maybe dangerous, dangerous three to five of your favorite Twitter accounts to follow. There's a fair number of retweets for Tim Urban. So I'm taking that oh, yeah. endorsement of Tim Urban and well, you'll um, probably be able to tell me better than I better than I can who I like based on my actions. Um, I love Tim Urban. This other guy uh, for fun follows Nathan Pyle. I think is fantastic. Um, he does a book series called Strange Planet that I absolutely love. Um, he does like comics and books and writing and whatever. Um, also, there's. I've been lately. I've been I've been really enjoying tweets. I'm not sure what it's called, like fat, something fascinating, but it's just like interesting science shit, um, cool technology things, whatever. Um, but I mean, I mean, I follow like a ton of accounts for just like crypto stuff, like crypto Twitter is kind of a thing. So I follow a couple hundred people in that space. Um, I'm trying to like increase my exposure to a few other things. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of like who, who my favorites are in this moment. So on another note, uh, you mentioned recently that you've taken up tennis and you're playing quite a lot. I have. Yeah. Other interviews, you say that you, you've been lifelong driven by improvement, generally speaking. That's what motivates you, improvement mm -hmm. in all of the different domains. And I remember from your blog, there was quite an emphasis on fitness and, and nutrition. You were one of the early poker players in, in deep fitness. So take us through your, your current kind of fitness regimes and, and how tennis came in. 
Yeah, I don't know about deep fitness. Probably save that for guys like Jason Kuhn or whatever. I, I, I would say I'm also more of a fitness hobbyist. Uh, but let's see. I So I've always been pretty active. Played a ton of sports growing up, football, basketball, baseball. Um, never picked up a tennis racket. Just didn't even – it was during baseball season, so it wasn't really like even a consideration for me. Baseball was my favorite sport at the time growing up or whatever. Uh, and then like after – after high school, um, played a lot of like flag football and pickup basketball and uh, got into jujitsu. I did that for a while. I did boxing. I did that for a while. Um, and then during COVID, uh, Natalie and I were spending a little bit of time, uh, my wife, uh, we were spending a little bit of time in Southern California. Uh, she'd been really wanting to take some tennis lessons. Um, and so she booked us five tennis lessons with just like, you know, whatever random coach. And I was just like, Oh, fine. I guess I'll go with you. Like, let's see how it goes. Um, loved it immediately. Like it was just very clear to me the first time that I played that I was like, Oh, I'm going to love this. And so just kind of immediately started playing like four days a week uh, and have been doing that for the last, yeah, I guess a little over three years now. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely gutted that I didn't start playing when I was a kid because I fucking love it. And I like really am curious to see if like I could have gotten good or something. Anyway. All right. I'm going to name some poker players and you let me know if you think you can beat them in tennis. <laughs> Dan Smith. Yes. Haral Bob. Yes. Haral Bob and I played a lot actually. Uh, me. Mm, not sure. Probably not. So Patrick, no, obviously. Definitely no Patrick. I want I watched like three minutes of you guys playing, I don't know, a couple of years ago or whenever you guys played. Um and yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to watch you again to see if to see how I think. But I, I would imagine you play sometime. Like, You're in Miami, we'll just play. I'm, I'd love I'm, to. I'm like I'm at a terrible point in the age curve, like really terrible. Uh, so my thought is basically like I'll continue like this on the trajectory, and you're maybe like starting to go down a little bit. I don't know. There's, there, there's probably some hope for me. Yeah, the 40s. How I you heard that they were tough, and I'm I'm fit. I mean, last year I did a 1930 uh, uh, three mile. So like okay. I'm 1933. So like my fitness is as good as it's ever been, but. Um, I'm just like falling apart in small ways. Like I had elbow surgery this year. That was seven months off and Ugh. just ankle gives me trouble. And it's, I don't know. There's been a lot of wear and tear though. I've, I've played a lot and done a lot of fitness stuff for a long time. So it's just, it just, it's tough. It's tough. It's definitely feel, like I'm getting worse. I, so the first like six months I played, I used to play with this like 88 year old dude. And he beat me the first like couple times we played. And I feel like like I'm a good athlete. I move really well. Obviously, it was terrible at tennis. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was the coolest thing that like an old dude with like a little bit of technique could just beat me up like a healthy fit, you know, mid thirties guy or whatever. Um, so at least I have like some hopes that I'll be able to do this for a long time. But I don't know. Maybe with maybe with what no, you're you saying, can do it I'm for a long time, and you can be pretty good for a long time. But yeah. 
you definitely plateau and then start to yeah, get fair enough. like a little worse. If you can somehow maintain fast feet, that can prevent the aging process. Uh, okay. It's tough. My my son now is eight, and there's a footwork coach around Miami that coaches Layla Fernandez and Fognini, and he does some some hour long lessons. So I'm gonna okay, try cool. to give Bear the foundation of great footwork and try to sneak in some some pointers myself and do some work there. But that's that's really what goes is just like movement and quickness and reaction. Yeah, makes time. sense. Yeah, I'm like I. I, I've played in a couple of leagues. I'm like a I'm like a very good four zero or like a pretty bad four five. Um, we'll we'll have fun battling. So you beat up on Haralbob. I beat up on Haralbob a little bit. Yeah, uh, he used to beat up on me, and now I'd say I beat up on him usually. I I ran into Mycon recently, and I played him. He's oh, pretty, how's this game? He's pretty okay. good. He's crafty. Cool. Yeah, it's I'm 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 finding that like just a bunch of people play casual tennis or whatever. I played with uh, I played with Blake Stevenson the other day, Empire Maker too. Um, uh, how was your time with Blake? Uh, he beat me. He beat me. Um, oh, I played, okay. I think, then I'm beating you. I'm beating you. Well, yeah. I mean, I played. That was like the worst I'd played in fucking like a year. But yeah, I mean, you're you're almost certainly beating me. Uh, yeah, my empire score lines are in the sort of two and one range yeah. consistently. Uh, and we've had some some fun bets over the years. Awesome. It's fun awesome. to play, it's fun to play with Empire because we both have a bad mental game. Like he'll he'll tell you that our golf and tennis has been legendary because like we just not good pressure players it's it's very funny because uh i don't know in other domains it's it's fine like for me i never feel anxious playing poker or taking a test or anything like that but but closing out say a set at an important juncture is is quite difficult so our mental games are both poor i would say okay yeah there's something about tennis too i don't know it's uh, like i feel like uh i'm similar in that regard right like i feel like i'm usually like reasonably cool under pressure or whatever but like something about having to throw that stupid ball up in the air and like just uh, yeah well i think when you start late it's worse because i'll just go with that yeah, yeah. <laughs> because in our group uh steve bass he played notre dame who's top five in the nation when he plays tennis he's locked down just mm -hmm. so good under pressure literally he'll play a match with zero misses and then golf which he started a little later he'll occasionally throw in a choke uh it's just you have so much confidence if you've been playing since you were five years old and have handled high pressure situations in high school and college and after. Yeah. And golf sense. is one where literally everyone chokes. Doyle Brunson has a famous quote where he says that 
in his lifetime of gambling golf that includes encountering thousands of people in high stakes matches, he knows of seven people that didn't choke under pressure. Pretty strong. I don't play that, golf. Yeah. I would imagine that, I would choke. That's just because there's so much fine muscle control. It's like very, very hard to tackle short game and yeah. so forth under pressure. Makes well, man, sense. this has been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you coming on. I know you don't do this kind of thing often. And from a podcasting perspective, I can tell you that uh, nothing generates engagement like the the sort of hidden wonder that never ventures in the public sphere. So I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here. This is fun. Enjoy talking to you.